I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton, and today I'm delighted to be joined by three academics who have guest edited a new book on military strategy, wartime, Temporality and the Decline of Western Military Power is the latest in the Chatham House Insights book series, which is published by Brookings Institution Press. It brings together 18 researchers who discuss conflicting perceptions of time anchored within Western political and military institutions and the West's attachment to fast-paced warfare at the expense of longer-term political solutions. It's a fascinating read and available to purchase online now. And I'm joined to discuss the sort of major themes in this book by the guest editors, Sten Rinning, who is Professor of War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark, Olivier Schmidt, who is also a professor at the University of Southern Denmark and also Director of Research and Studies at the French Institute for Higher National Defence Studies, and Amélie Toysen, who is an Assistant Professor at the Centre for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark as well. So thank you all very much for joining me. It's great to see you. Thank you for having us. Great to see you, Ben. I would just like to kick us off by looking a bit at the recent history that, that your book grapples with. And I wonder if maybe just to begin, I'll start with Sten perhaps, you could characterise the wars that have been fought by the West in the 21st century. How do we think about those? What's the scholarship saying about the character of those wars? And maybe as an addition to that, could you explain what you mean by your subtitle, The Decline in Western Military Power? Certainly, Ben, and thank you. What has uh, really inspired us to begin this book and organise it in the way we have is the fact that the West has been heavily engaged in war for the past 30 to 40 years. And it hasn't been winning. Some would say it has lost wars. Uh, what we certainly know is that it has invested enormously in dragging out wars in order to stave off any sense of loss. And we know from the literature that the weak can win wars in, under certain conditions. And we know that uh, clever opponents can adapt strategies to exploit the West. That, that's pretty well covered. But what struck us was as we looked inside the West itself, why is it that we observe, on the one hand, the West being committed to very lofty, progressive visions of where the war would take them, very ambitious wars? And on the other hand, it seemed that every year they reinvented the war. They fought new campaigns every year. And so on and on it, it went at a terrible cost of human lives and resources. And so this inability to have war serve political objectives is not only due to the opponent, but also due to something going on inside the West. Hence our, our subtitle, uh, The Decline of Western Military Power. I think there's a commonplace in media commentary around war in the 21st century, particularly that propagated by the US and the UK, that they kind of group all of these different conflicts together as misguided military adventures, thinking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, 
and more recently Syria and Yemen, perhaps. And I wonder whether it makes sense in strategic terms to group all of these conflicts together. Have we seen the same sorts of mistakes repeated over and over, as Sten maybe was suggesting? Or are we actually talking about very different manifestations of the same problem? Yeah, thanks. That's, a, that's of course, a very good question. And I think it depends with which perspective you you do the analysis on this one. I think what the media hints at in its conclusions, right, and its grouping together is exactly what Stein has just mentioned, this lack of the war serving a further political goal, that it seems we're involved in constant wars that never end and that never come to the political conclusion that we were hoping to reach maybe at the beginning, at the outset of these interventions. And that's exactly what we're looking at in this book is the multifaceted reasons of why that happens. And then the role, of course, that temporality plays in that, both in terms of Western institutions, military institutions, military operations, and the underlying normative framework that make it, when they come together, so difficult for the West to achieve its goals with these wars. So in that sense, you can group them together. But of course, they're very uh, different circumstances, right, uh, on the ground, and uh, also different reasons for why we were there in the first place. But uh, the outcomes are similar in that regard. Maybe, Olivier, if I could come to you and ask whether the failures that we've been talking about and that have been outlined so far, are those failures actually to do with military capability. Could you argue that actually there is no state that has supreme military power that could win any engagement at all? And that actually what's far more important is the decision of which engagement to sort of go into, almost regardless of your strict military capability? Well, I think it is one of the paradoxes we're trying to hint at in the book, that on paper, the West is clearly militarily more powerful than all potential opponents, just because of the fact that there is a degree of technological superiority that Western military forces enjoy, and also the fact that uh, Western countries are bound together uh, within an alliance that is supposed to aggregate such military capabilities. And yet, we are not winning. Uh, Stan and Amelie have mentioned. So this is one of the paradoxes that we try to explore. And another paradox, which is underlying in the book, is the fact that we attempt to win wars or achieve military objectives relatively quickly, but we end up bogged down in forever wars. And it is this paradox that is quite important in this book. In 2003, then General Mattis, you know, who became Secretary of Defense of the United States, he was uh, leading a U.S. Marine Division who participated in the invasion of Iraq. And recalling his experience, he mentioned that we knew that the center of gravity was speed. And he has this very strong quote, which is, speed equals success. And it is a very interesting way to frame how Western countries conduct military operations. They tried to do it fast, but we ended up bogged down in forever wars. So we are fighting fast and slow, like Pascal Venusson writes in his chapter. And it's this paradox that we are exploring, and we have attempted different things. We have attempted to stay for a long time, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, Afghanistan being the longest U.S. military intervention. In Libya and Syria, we have tried to basically have limited military interventions and then let the political situation run its own course in a sense, and it doesn't work either. So the fact that we have tried different ways of intervention, that none of them seems to be working, 
hints to the fact that there is something bigger and deeper going into Western war making, which is related to, we argue, perceptions of time and temporality in how we prosecute warfare. The book is kind of broadly structured into three sections, each posing a certain aspect of explaining this inability to win wars. And I just wondered if each of you could maybe summarise the sections that you were involved with. So I think first off, let's start with Sten. And the section that you convened the the group of articles within the book on civil-military relations. So could you maybe explain the key aspects of this argument as it plays into this discussion that we're having? Well, section one deals with essentially civil-military tension, not in the sort of strict sense of do elected policymakers run the generals or do the generals run the policymakers. That, that's too narrow for the book. What, what we look at is the institution of the military and how it's balanced by liberal society in the West. And where liberal society is not involved in war and it has a progressive sense of itself, how it moves through time and how it's making progress and how time is on the side of society and it, it has an inbuilt disdain for war, a military society believes time is cyclical and doesn't believe that time is on its side. It's That's not built into war. And connecting these two strands of Western government and you know war participation is really the key responsibility of decision makers. And what we see, and this is what section one lays out, is that the role of decision makers in bridging liberal society and military society or the instrument of war has declined. And decision makers tend to appeal to a magic sauce. We don't use that term in the book, but you know, <laughs> here we go. Where on the one hand, they throw easy money at war because they have access to financial markets that have developed. And so they don't tax society. They don't ask citizens to get involved in war. They borrow money. Uh, secondly, they appeal to technology. They can mobilize all types of impressive hardware that comes out of Western scientific aptitude and pretend that this will give them control of war. And then finally, they invest a lot of liberal hope that war is here to do good. We can invest our hopes and dreams in war because it will produce better outcomes. And this magic sauce uh, ends up disappointing because liberal society doesn't get involved with the military, with the war effort itself. And the military community, military society, tries to speed up war in order to stave off the reaction of society when war will inevitably drag on. And so you get this dual conflicting sense of what war is, how it's run, and no one is really in control. And decision makers in a way, fail their responsibility to take control by making the pain of war visible to society and thereby asking society to restrain decision makers and have them define a realizable political objective behind the war. And what Section 1 does, it, it lays out, you know, where did this go wrong? And uh, we have, you know, different takes on that. So moving through time, so you can add that together and you get a sense, sort of a more coherent sense of how this came about. But one part of it begins with after the Napoleonic Wars, where the role of technology grows in Western war. Another part is the, the 
evolution of financial markets and thus the access to easy money. And then finally, it's the access to partnerships across the globe. And that becomes sort of a quick fix for, for solving some of the politics in, involved in war. And the, the, the sum of this is, is a, a, a split within Western institutions that decision makers are not managing well. That's really interesting. Thank you. I just wanted to ask something about how this kind of manifests in public opinion in the current time. I mean, you've spoken there about ways in which war has become disconnected from the lives of everyday citizens in the countries that we're talking about and how there's a sort of distancing almost. But I just wondered whether that manifests itself in apathy in elections, whether military action has any impact on electoral domestic politics in these countries. I guess you could look back to the Falklands War in the 1980s for the UK and the bounce that Margaret Thatcher got as a result and the election that she won soon after that conflict. But then also you look now at the noose around the Labour Party's neck as a result of the Iraq war and how they're sort of increasing. Still, even to this day, there are questions over how far they can be trusted on foreign policy and defence issues. So I wonder what the impact on public opinion and elections have been of, of this state that you describe. So we don't go too far into public opinion, but it's clear that war in an electoral cycle becomes a means to build up the lofty promises of progress that policymakers uh, harbor and believe in and that will help them get their message across to the public and which will outgrow what war can deliver. And so two mistakes are made by policymakers in managing the electoral cycle. One is to uh, demonize their opponents, and then they get what they ask for. They get wars that are there to rid the world of evil. And that is a pretty lofty ambition. And so they lose control. Or they get the inverse, which is don't do stupid stuff, as President Obama said. And implied herein is the sense that you can actually choose your wars. And, And that may not be the case. And this sense that you have to be humble when confronted with war and restrained in how you manage it. And you have to move with war and control it by financing your political objectives. That gets lost in the West. And uh, sort of the sense that war belongs to policy and you get what you ask for if you lose control of your policy, that gets lost in the West. And electoral cycles uh, feed into that within this overall clash between liberal civil institutions and military institutions. I'd like to turn now to Amelie and talk about the second section of the book, which is looking more at the international norms, kind of rules and conventions that govern how states think about war. I just wondered, Amelie, if you could give us a bit of a summary of the contributions there. Yeah, absolutely. So in my section, we're looking at the international normative order, mainly sort of the legal normative order, but also a little bit the more moral and ethical uh, norms that we also employ when we uh, when the West goes to war in one way or another. And we're taking departure in, uh, in the existing normative uh, structure, of course, that was built largely after the Second World War and, of course, reflects that world order as well, right? So it's a, it's a reflection of the premacy of the West and uh, a reflection of Western ideas in, in, in that sense as well, even though, of course, there's the ambition that they should be global and universal. But this order 
is under fire from multiple directions. And that means that there's the possibility that that order can change, right? Norms can change through controversies, through discussions, through breaches, through ignorance. It really depends. And the challenges that we see come both from within the West, but also from outside the West. So, for example, the election of Donald Trump as American president put the question marks on that order, right? Especially when he refused to sign uh, international communiques, right? Reaffirming the importance of that order. But it is also challenged by uh, American peer competitors, Russia, China, who put forward different interpretations or at least challenged the West on its dominant interpretations of these norms. And then we also have non-state actors, for example, that employ strategies and tactics that aren't in line with the norms that the West uses when, when the West goes to war, and that potentially forces the West to, to abandon some of these norms in order to fight them effectively, right? And we see these type of new forms of warfare, or at least conflict in the gray zone, hybrid means and methods, combining sort of the states of peace and war and causing problems, right, in terms of how you respond to those, because these responses are bound by uh, the normative framework that exists. So in the section, we're looking at norms of civilian protection. In the case of Afghanistan, Kathleen McInnes's chapter and uh, we're looking at questions of when to intervene, so the norms of intervention and the responsibility to protect in Natasha Kurtz's chapter. And then we're also looking at the fundamental wartime, peacetime distinction that's enshrined in this normative setup that we have and how um, gray zone warfare, hybrid conflict, how they challenge this very sort of fundamental distinction that the norms are built on. I wonder if I could just push you to go a little bit further into depth on the challenges that other countries are presenting to the kind of Western norms that we've been discussing in this book. You mentioned there the challenge of Russia and China. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what those kind of challenges consist of? What are the competing interpretations of these conventions? Yeah, so if we look at uh, Natasha Kurtz's chapter, for example, who looks at these competing interpretations of the norms of, uh, of intervention, she finds that sort of the main problem is actually within the West, that we in the West don't quite agree on when to intervene and how to intervene. And the problem here is one of temporality in a, in a sense, because we're torn between the need to speedily intervene and save civilians, right? This idea of the responsibility to protect, that we have a responsibility to intervene when there are uh, mass civilian casualties going on. But at the same time, we have a longer term interest of avoiding another protracted war, right? So we also have a wish to not intervene in a conflict that potentially involves us again for another 10, 15 years and comes with a cost in both lives and, uh, and finances. So these two contrasting wishes and needs basically create a discussion within the West of when to intervene, when is it necessary, how do we then do it? And that can be exploited, especially by Russia, which then basically uses some of the some of the arguments put forward within the Western discussion as its own arguments, justifying why intervention in the in the Ukraine, for example, is a possibility and sort of turns the legal arguments around and uses them to to justify its own uh, approaches. And Natasha also concludes that China has not been doing that actively yet, but of course they're taking note, right? And there's a possibility that that can be done in the future, especially also looking at the developments in the South China Sea, for example, where there already is a, a certain extent of lawfare going on. So this use of legal arguments justifying policies. 
Mm, that's super interesting as well. I, I'm going to have to move on though, just so that we get everything covered. So I'd like to come to Olivier now. Olivier, could you maybe tell us a bit about the section that you worked on in particular, which looked more at the kind of military strategy, the specifics of the kind of character of war? Yes, absolutely. So the third section, which I edited, is mostly about warfare, so the conduct of military operations. And we look at how the perception of time has an influence on how Western military organizations plan and prosecute military operations. One of the core takeaway is that there is a preference for speed in the way Western media organizations plan their operations, trying to speed up their own decision-making cycle so that they can be faster than the enemy. So by being faster than the enemy or the adversary, you can dismantle and paralyze its decision-making. So if you speed up, you will be better able to paralyze and dismantle the enemy. The problem is that there is gradually an issue between the preference for speed at the tactical operational level and the timing of crisis management operations that Western forces have been engaged in in the past 20 years, right, uh, 20, 30 years. The, the political timing is much longer than the military timing of speeding up uh, military operations. There is also the fact that gradually this preference for speed is being uh, resisted by potential adversaries because they have been taking notes. So there are a number of underlying trends in military operations that go directly against this preference for speed. The first one being the development of subversion activities such as cyber operations and so-called hybrid warfare, which are meant to slow down the decision-making processes by Western countries, right? If you look at the invasion of Crimea, for example, the fact that the so-called green men were not wearing any patches or anything was meant to paralyze the decision-making cycle in Western countries because for 48 hours, they needed to assess what was really going on. And by taking that time, you just slow down the decision-making cycle and basically you are paralyzed. In terms of military capabilities, there are also development in terms of anti-access and area denial capabilities, so-called HUAD, such as air defense systems, standoff missiles, which are meant to counter one of the main military advantages of Western powers, which is air superiority. And what we have been enjoying for the past 30 years, which is campaigns in which air superiority was absolutely not contested, is probably coming to an end. So the way we plan military operations will need to take into account the fact that air superiority will only be achieved for specific moments during a campaign, for example, for slots of two to three hours in which air forces will need to support ground forces. So the way the campaigns are planned will be totally different, and that has a change in terms of timing. So there's also the fact that urban warfare is probably not going away. I mean, we've seen it in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, military operations are likely to be conducted in mega cities in the future. And just because of the geography of those mega cities, it will slow down the pace of operations. So there is this tension between the preference for speed and the likely trends on the battlefield, so to speak. So what the section is doing is trying to tease out uh, those tensions in a number of directions. So there's a chapter by uh, Pascal Vincent who's basically looking at the gap between the doctrines in Western armed forces which are emphasizing speed 
and the practices of military operations, which are actually having to take into account the fact that campaigns take much longer and how doctrine play catch up with practice, but then doctrine comes back to the preference for speed and practice has to adjust and so on and so forth. So it's playing with this tension that we have been observing for the past 30 years. So there's a chapter by Nina Collars on multi-domain operations and the perceptions of time that are embedded within the U.S. services, so Navy, Air Force, and Army, so the U.S. services understanding of multi-domain operations. And what is really interesting is that she shows that those conceptions are contradictory with each other. So each of the service has developed a doctrine for, or at least some documents for multi-domain operations, but they rely on contradictory assumptions about how speed operates and work in military environments. And there is a chapter by uh, Heather Williams, which is looking at strategic weapons and especially the developments of hypersonic and hypervelocity uh, missiles and other types of technologies that seem to speed up the battlefield. But basically, she's trying to provide a not a warning, but a call for reason. And she's trying to explain that you know the core notions of strategic stability, arms control, they are still applicable in a context in which strategic weapons seem to be going faster and faster. So she's trying to go against the hyper-hype, if you want. Again, calling for analysts and uh, specialists to uh, remember that speed is not everything. There are broader dynamics of deterrence at play in the context of strategic weapons and emerging technologies. Oh, super interesting. So much covered there. I just wondered if I could ask you to explain a bit more the downsides of this doctrinal preference for speed. Just because, I mean, as someone who is not a military strategist and (laughs) who doesn't think about these things too often, I mean, just from thinking of it from a sort of common sense point of view, it feels like the faster you can deliver specific military operations and the more efficiency you can work into that process, the longer time you have to make the decision of whether you should do it or not, because it takes less time to mobilize the <laughs> the capabilities that you need to actually execute a plan. So, I mean, just from that point of view, it feels like the preference for speed kind of makes sense because you can really deliberate at the political level and leave your decision to as close to the last minute as possible and still have time to act but in the book, you go into a lot more detail about why actually that's uh, <laughs> maybe overly simplistic. So could you explain that, please? No, absolutely. The preference for speed makes total sense in the context of 20th century warfare, which basically shows the development of so-called maneuver warfare. So basically brigades and divisions maneuvering and trying to overwhelm a conventional opponent. And the better you are at maneuver warfare, the more likely you are to succeed on the battlefield. And it is something that uh, the Gulf War perfectly illustrated. Uh, The Gulf War was the peak of maneuver warfare for Western armed forces. The issue is that this preference for speed, which, again, does not come from nowhere and is not irrational in any ways, right? So there is a, an underlying reason for that. But this preference for speed is becoming ingrained in doctrinal preferences that run the risk of being 
maybe not obsolete, but slightly disconnect, disconnected from the evolution of contemporary battlefields. Because again, coming back to a point that Stan, Amelie, and I were making earlier, there are a number of emerging threats at the moment related to subversion, related to uh, hybrid warfare, related to the fact that uh, there are gray zone conflicts and operations conducted under the threshold of conventional military interventions. All this is changing the nature of the battlefield and the fact that there is no linear front anymore, so to speak. Therefore, the thinking that argues that basically the enemy will be outpaced and outmaneuvered is becoming irrelevant in a context when most actions are becoming an object of contestation. So this preference for speed is becoming ingrained in doctrinal preferences, running the risk of being disconnected from the way the contemporary conflicts are playing out. Yeah, thanks very much. Because Amelie and Olivia have both mentioned this idea of the grey zone and and action below the threshold of all-out war. I just wondered if we could talk a bit more about that concept. And I thought maybe I could turn to Sten to think about the impact of this for the civil-military relations aspect of the book. And I was just wondering whether you think there's a sign that policymakers are accepting this increasing eliding of wartime and peacetime and that those two kind of states aren't as easily separated as maybe they were in the past and do you think that military leaders and and politicians are accepting that and communicating that well enough to the public and having the conversations that need to be had about this or is it still trying to keep up this illusion of the very sort of sharp distinction there's definitely a sense among uh, Western leaders and decision makers that our approach to um, subversive, hybrid, asymmetrical warfare is untenable. And I think we see it on the one hand in the realization that it leads to forever war and forever war leads to a sense of loss of ourselves. Uh, So we see tribalism taking over in the West. It's dressed up as nationalism, but what it really does is it divides the West and it divides the nations. And so it's, it's a problem for our very core foundation of political thinking. I think we see it also in the sense that widespread recognition that Russia is good at this and we're not good at countering it. And so A lot of thinking has been put into early warning, detection, when is the pattern not normal? When are we beginning to see something that we should be especially aware of? And how can we uh, protect our societies by developing this agenda of resilience that has become um, the new flavor of the day in, in strategic debates? Now, where I think we still have some ways to go is in terms of settling on a course of action when we're confronted with subversive warfare. And again, I think this is uh, the agenda that has become dominant, which is great power conflict. It's, it's Russia and it's China. And I think we're seeing hesitation on the part of the West. One is Russia is very clearly using Ukraine to hone its skills in subversive warfare. And the West is divided on how tough to be in confrontation with this Russian policy. And Russia is doing other things. It's subverting our democracies, it's poisoning dissidents in the West and so forth. And there's not agreement on how to confront this. And on China, the challenge here is that they have a full spectrum of 
instruments, of capabilities, of power options. And there's disagreement on how to label that, how to interpret what China is doing. Is it a challenge? Is it a risk? Is it an opportunity? Is it a threat? And as long as we're debating these issues, we cannot really get our head around how to deal with the subversion of our ability to think limited political objectives that military effort can serve. And so I think the West is at the phase where they recognize the problem, they recognize the challenge, but there's still some ways to go in terms of figuring out how to deal with the key actors employing these tools against the West. Can I jump in there? Because in the chapter that uh, Peter Vigo Jacobson from the Royal Danish Defense College and myself have written for the book in, in section two, we exactly analyzed this wartime and peacetime distinction and how gray zone warfare is meant to challenge that, right? Because it undermines the ability of the West, as Stin has pointed out, to respond to these type of challenges because it's stuck in between its two paradigms. Should it react with peaceful measures, right, that fits in peacetime, or should it react with conventional military force and sort of what comes with that, um, which belongs to wartime? And of course, what Stin also mentioned in, in the beginning, the problem in these forever wars that can result here is that originally wartime in our perception, in the Western perception, is supposed to be the exception, right? Wartime is the exceptional state and peacetime is the state we want to return to and we're coming from originally. And that's being put in question here. And Peter Viggo Jakobsen and, and I, we actually conclude that, as Steen also has pointed out, in, in terms of strengthening the resilience of Western societies, for example, peacetime might be the right paradigm to use in these cases because it gives a wider variety of means and measures to, to counter these type of challenges in the gray zone, right? And an example for that could be comparing NATO and, and the European Union and their abilities to, to respond, right? With the European Union having a much sort of broader tool set that includes law enforcement ideas, that includes uh, strengthening of the democracy, right? Free speech, free trade, uh, free travels, these type of things. So there's a much broader sort of set of tools available. So this talk about gray zone warfare, classifying it as warfare, in that sense, might actually be counterproductive, right? But at least that's a discussion that needs to be had in all its aspects and all its consequences, as Esteen uh, also was, was saying. So also from a, a normative perspective, it matters. Okay, so um, I just wondered if we could think maybe about how things are likely to develop in the future. And I know experts are often incredibly reticent to make predictions, and I'm not going to ask you to do that. <laughs> but I just wanted to have a think about how things could be changing and whether they have changed. And I suppose my first question on this really, um, to Olivier perhaps, is do we think that this phenomenon of time and temporality in warfare is something that military leaders are increasingly recognizing as a problem that needs to be addressed? And are we sort of seeing solutions emerge to these difficulties that are being posed? Or are there signs that actually the problems, if anything, are just worsening and exacerbating over time? Paradoxically, I do believe that the focus on high-intensity warfare can provide an opportunity to try to rethink a bit the speed paradigms that have been developed over the past 30 years. For one single reason, it's because my understanding that military leaders understand that high-intensity warfare will only be a phase 
in a much broader conflict temporality that will involve first a phase of subversion, cyber attacks, hybrid warfare, you name it, right? But in phase of a very intense conflict, there will first be a phase of such cases of subversion that will target all of societies, right? It will not be limited to the armed forces. It will be all of society. Second, there will be a phase of high-intensity warfare. But this phase, by definition, will not last forever. So there should be a post-conflict phase as well. And it seems to me that on the strategic level, the understanding that, as Amelie was mentioning, right, this blurring between uh, wartime and peacetime actually has operational consequences in terms of how we need to think about how we will conduct operations in the future. So it forces a rethinking about the tempo, the pace and the temporality of our uh, military operations. So I do see that as a potential opportunity to break out of this loop of uh, trying to get faster and faster, but being gradually bogged down in long-term interventions. I can give it a, a shot from the normative perspective because I, I see similar tendencies that Olivier has just outlined. So I, I see that the norms are being put in question and that is being debated. And there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of also questioning of what to do with this now. And I think if we are able to come to more of a consensus agreement on what we want the norms of the future to look like, I, I would like to see that as the next step. I think there's potential for agreement in light of these challenges. But I think it's necessary to commit to this, right? And commit to it as the West coming together with, with allies and trying to find sort of these, these area of consensus and commonality when it comes to what political norms do we want to enforce in the future, right? What is our vision on a normative level? And there's potential for that, but more needs to happen because right now I think we're stuck in a discussion of the challenges more than we are oriented towards the solutions just yet. Absolutely, yeah. Now, we have spoken a lot about the challenges in this conversation as well, but I do think also that your book proffers some really interesting ways forward for how these problems could be overcome and, and how maybe military strategy could be developed differently. So I just wondered whether, perhaps starting with Sten, could you sort of run us through some of these alternative approaches that the book thinks about? Certainly. One thing we recommend is that Western societies come around to the fact that the adversary will live to see another day. And so we can defeat the Taliban, but the Taliban will be there the day after. We can defeat this particular Sunni group leadership, but the Sunni network and, and people will be there the day after. So war is, and the, the use of force, the, the way we think about the military instrument in a Western toolbox needs to be wrapped in enhanced, more developed thinking on the adversary and how we can relate to that adversary tomorrow in a changed political relationship. And once we figure that out, not figure it out, but how once we develop our thinking on that, we will be better able to think, how can the military instrument serve that purpose? So in a sense, we're dealing with a legacy of world wars that you know the West won, then a Cold War that the West won, and then post-Cold War wars that the West thought that it, it could win. And now it needs 
to change its mindset and come around to the fact that we need to understand the opponents in a much deeper way than we have been accustomed to. And so this requires that we slow down, that we bring humanists and social scientists into the cycle of war planning that otherwise will tend to become dominated by all the people who understand artificial intelligence and the digital domain of, of speed. And that policymakers, decision makers, finally make war or the military effort, the use of force, make the cost of that visible to society, because that will be the constraint on how they think about war and sort of the discipline that will tell decision makers, well, there is no such thing as a magic sauce. War is a domain you need to enter and be humble about what it can achieve for you. Thank you. Amelie, Olivier, do you have any other things to add to this? I think very briefly, the key challenge, and I know it's a broad recommendation, which is far from the narrow and on-point advices that policymakers like, but I think it's a fundamental intellectual challenge, which is that we basically need to take time seriously in strategy making and take time as a core component of how we devise strategies. We tend to understand strategy as either a plan, so seeing in the future and uh, planning steps uh, that needs to be achieved in order to to achieve a specific result, or we tend to see strategy as coordination coordinating between different means. But all this needs to be embedded within a broader understanding of how we understand the role of time, timing, pace, tempo, and temporality in all its dimensions, because it's critical into how uh, Western countries will succeed or not into making strategy effective in the future. Thank you. And thank you very much, um, all three of you, uh, Sten Rinning, Amelie Toysen and Olivier Schmidt. It's a really fascinating book. Uh, there's a link to where you can obtain a copy in the show notes of this episode. And I really recommend that you do go and purchase it. It's titled Wartime, Temporality and the Decline of Western Military Power. And uh, all that's left for me to say is thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.